Welcome to The Mockingcast. I'm Ethan Richardson. I'm the editor-in-chief of our print magazine, The Mockingbird, the most recent of which just shipped out, the Faith and Doubt issue. In it, we take on the big questions of existence and belief, questions like, where is God in pain? Why don't I feel God's presence more? Why has church made belief harder rather than easier? And then we come out with intelligent, precise, satisfying, quick answers to all of them, all in 116 pages. That's a joke. We, we don't really answer a whole lot. But I do think we offer, hopefully, some clarifying comfort. And in thinking about how to sum up the contents of what this issue is, I keep going back to this third chapter of one of our favorite books, Unapologetic, by Francis Bufford. He's discussing how faith is not exactly the antidote to human doubt that we're sometimes hoping for. And to the contrary, even for those who believe, there's the profoundly difficult and oftentimes infuriating experience of just falling on deaf ears, seeming not to be heard, and therefore wondering if there's anyone there at all. The soul cries out, as the psalmist says, like a deer panting for a stream of cold water. Spufford continues this line of thought. What does the deer get in response? What do you and I get in response for our wanting and our asking? And on page 55, this is what he says. Nothing. No pannikin of cold water is brought to your thirsty lips. A lot of people conclude from this, not surprisingly, that they were foolish to ask at all. They recoil, feeling stupid, feeling, despite themselves, a little rejected too. You ask for help and you get nothing. On a conscious level, you may have decided that there was nobody there to help, but less consciously, since you did ask, it feels as if help was denied. Hence the angry edge that sometimes sharpens disbelief when it's been renewed by one of these episodes of fruitless asking. In the words of Samuel Beckett, he doesn't exist, the bastard. The life of faith has just as many he doesn't exist, the bastard moments as the life of disbelief. Probably more of them, if anything, given that we believers tend to return to the subject more often producing many more opportunities to be disappointed. This is because, for us too, nothing happens when we ask for help. The nothing that happens is universal, an experience shared by believers and unbelievers alike. It's true that we understand the nothing differently, but not because we start from a different experience of it. That's the end of the quote. So, faith... Spufford says, may not change the pain of existence at all. It may, in fact, tune you in more to the suffering and the silence and the questions that you might have tuned out otherwise. But sometimes it is faith that will not leave us alone. I keep thinking about FBI agent Fox Mulder from the 90s series, The X-Files, and he just can't rid himself of the conviction that there is something out there. And it just keeps following him and finding him week after week, no matter where he turns. It continues to lurk out there, beyond the control of his reason. And the existential questions of faith are just the same. They ask us whether what you see and hear and think and feel is really all that's there. It asks the same question that Walker Percy asks of whether or not we are on to something. And as you'll hear in the interviews that follow, the world we live in is not so much like Fox Mulder's world as it is like Mulder's sidekick and skeptic, Dana Scully. There's no proof of this stuff. And if there's no proof, it doesn't exist. Jesus, aliens, 
resurrection, the forgiveness of sins. Come on, do you really believe that? And thankfully, the Christian message makes room for the Scullies and the Molders in all of us. As journalist Michael Gerson put it in a recent sermon, faith, thankfully, does not preclude doubt. It consists instead of staking your life on the rumor of grace. So this is the good news we have to offer in the faith and doubt issue. No more prescriptions for more faith, but just the reliant message that faith has been given to us by the faithful one. And as a bit of a sampler, in this podcast, I'm chatting with a few of our contributors to say more. First of all, Gordon Marino, who heads the Hong Kierkegaard Library in Minnesota, And he wrote this book called The Existentialist Survival Guide that just released this year. He's also, strangely, a professional boxing coach. I'm also joined by Connor Gwynn, who's a priest and a philosophy professor who walks us through secularism and its impact on the church. And I'm joined by children's author and Jesus Storybook Bible creator, Sally Lloyd-Jones, who's going to tell us about what it means to have a child's faith its wonder and its humility, and Christ's beckoning to the inner child in us all. And of course, if you're not currently a subscriber and you're listening and you haven't had a chance to get yourself a copy of the Faith and Doubt issue, you can and you should do so right now. Buy this one copy or you can get a subscription at magazine.embird.com. Stay tuned. Right. So one thing I wanted to ask you was like how the book came about. The thing I love about the book is how plain spoken it is. And, and you're, you're, you're speaking from your, your experience. Um, your life is a big part of it. And you sort of say that this is kind of the existentialist way. You know, there's not many of them who had a huge amount of love for academia. You know, they were right, kind of, right. They were um, outsiders. And that's uh, even the book, the outsider. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah so, uh, I was approached by Harper after uh, they, they approached me about doing a book. And uh, and um, it, it seemed to me that after all these years of hanging around with CERN, I ought to be able to articulate some of the lessons I've taken from, and uh, in many cases, life, uh, life, life-saving lessons. And so uh, that's how the book got started. Mm-hmm. In your life, I mean, how, how, did, how did you come to, I guess, meet these existentialist thinkers and you mentioned a little bit of it in your book, but can you tell us about that? Oh yeah, I went through a terrible, terrible divorce. Uh, I was married to someone who had, uh, I would say, we both had substance abuse problems, but uh, she was a little bit beyond mind, and um, uh, she walked out one day, and uh, mm-hmm. I ended up in a psychiatric hospital, all kinds of stuff, and um, and then I was in therapy with uh, this Beatrice Beebe. Mm-hmm. Where about and um, one day on the way to therapy, I, I uh, was in a bookstore and uh, in New York and uh, picked up Works of Love. I think it was. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it just spoke to me. Uh, one of the things that, that was very important was uh, Kierkegaard made me believe I was going through it. I was in really bad shape, very dangerous shape for t- for two years. I mean, I was really people were, you know, I was suicidal, all kinds of stuff. And um, Kierkegaard made, made me feel that uh, suffering is an activity that you can do well or poorly, and it's not mm-hmm. not a passive enterprise. And I'm not even sure where I got that from. It's funny, you know, but that helped me um, try to pull myself together a lot. And then I started to read them and, and it helped me take, a, I hate to say, take faith more seriously, but uh, it was something like that. So I encountered him on the, uh, I was uh, calling a cross cut glass, as Bob Dylan would say. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, so it was yeah. a really bad time. So it was, a, it was, a ther- it was therapy, really, you know, and uh, uh, so yeah, that's how I came to him. Yeah. And, at at that point, had you had you known really anything about him or about about? I heard of him. 
I yeah. heard of it. Yeah, and I was in grad school. Well, I dropped out of grad school about 14 times. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah. Not 14, but about four. <laughs> what about what he said was was consoling to you? Well, uh, as I said, as I said, this notion that suffering is an activity, that it's not mm. a disease. You know, when you're going through like really deep depression, you just feel like uh, you stink. You know, like you're just worthless, and it's a really, uh, it's it's, it's uh, it just. I thought of it in passive terms. It's just a kind of sickness, and people didn't want to be around people. Didn't think people wanted to be around me, and then. He said, well, you know, he helped me realize that um, well, there's a lot of suffering in life. You got to try to re- reach through it and be a loving person. Mm. You know, that's one of the points I try to make with my students and, and uh, especially teaching ethics that uh, for most people, it's pretty easy to be nice when all their lights are green. But uh, there's going to be a lot of times when they're not. There's going to be a lot of suffering, a lot of pain in life. And uh, you got to try to be loving people during those times. Yeah. It's, I mean, tell me if you think this is true, but I mean, a, a lot of people sort of view like the existentialists, the people, the people who sort of want to read Nietzsche or yeah. Dostoevsky or Kierkegaard as as sort of dark people or mm-hmm. people who are sort of navel gazing or sort of in a like suffering state of mind or something like that. I mean, do you think that's fair? Or I mean, part well, of it is that these these guys take suffering seriously. Yeah, they take what we're up against, uh, you know, and to lead a good life, uh, philosophy is supposed to be all about wisdom and sophos, not knowledge, episteme, and it's supposed to be how to lead a good life. And in order to lead a good life, there's certain internal challenges we face, and anxiety, depression, death, how to love properly, those are all there. And I, I think uh, the existentialists address those feelings in ways that other other people haven't, and they can, they can also write like angels, too, so it helps. Right, right. No. Yeah, that's the, that's the other thing is that, okay. I mean, in, in especially, you know, academic theologians or philosophers are, are oftentimes so terrible to read. Yeah, yeah. And it turns out that most of these guys are pretty, pretty fun to read. Well, I don't know about fun, but certainly <laughs> insightful and they can move the waters of language. Very powerful writers, at least, uh, you know, Dostoevsky, Camus, Kierkegaard, Nietzsche. I don't find Sartre that a greater writer, but the rest of them are beautiful writers. Amazing. Yeah. So if if there's someone who hasn't picked up your book, but also hasn't really gotten started with any of the, like wouldn't know what existentialism was uh, if if asked, what would you tell that person it's all about? And what are sort of the themes or the the calling cards that they that they handle? I mean, where there's only only a couple of people who maybe identify themselves as existentialists, that would be Sartre and his uh, Simone de Beauvoir at a certain point. Uh, and many many of the people classified as existentialists denied the denied the label. So I think they're brought together by certain themes: choice, freedom, first person perspective on life, on a kind of deflationary view of reason, recognition of the irrationality of uh, human life, uh, themes like that, emphasis on action. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that and, and Kierkegaard is often recognized as the as the first as the real first existentialist, and he used to criticize Hegel and other theorists for thinking while forgetting they exist, right? Mm-hmm. So thinking while forgetting they exist, which would mean like theorizing without being able to relate your theory to your everyday existence. So, for example, there's this beautiful passage where he talks about, yeah, I know all these objective facts about death. Right, and he goes through a whole list for two pages. You know, if you take arsenic, you're going to die. Blah blah blah. But uh, it, that doesn't tell me what it means that I'm going to die. Right. So this inside-out perspective, I think you find in existentialism. That's very important, especially with your career. And um, as far as the limits of reasoning or rationality, who was he responding to? Who were the? What was the sort of like ideology of the day that he was up against? Well, certainly Hegel. Right, and Hegel was probably the most famous philosopher of the nineteenth century, and uh, and here you have both. It's interestingly enough, both Kierkegaard and Marx are born out of grappling with Hegel, and mm. he put uh, tremendous emphasis on on reason, on on solving all the problems of skepticism, and um, so uh, he Kierkegaard is certainly grappling with that with that tradition, and even the Enlightenment tradition of that that we can solve all our problems with reason. And you read something like Dostoevsky's Notes from the Underground, it's the same thing, right? I mean, this idea that if we just rationally arrange society in a certain way, evil would disappear, right? And things mm-hmm. like that. 
Yeah. So, so they were, it wasn't like they, they didn't respect reason, but they recognized its limitations in terms of guiding human life. So if you think about Kierkegaard's understanding of, like one thing that someone told me was that Kierkegaard sort of saw everything around him as an illusion, you know, that what people were living their lives for and the reasons that they were doing them were sort of, they were sort of blind to the reasons why they were doing what they were doing. And, and that a lot of Kierkegaard's task was to unmask that or sort of show it for what it is. Is that, is that the case? Uh, maybe. I mean, Kierkegaard thought that uh, um, human beings didn't have a lot of continuity in their life. You do one, you know, it's, you go from one thing to the other, and that it was just a, a life that he thought that we needed to have continuity to establish what he, uh, he called a life perspective. So he thought most of it lacked that. They just bounced around from this to that or just thought about their job. So, for example, uh, with my, my students, uh, they always want to talk about, you know, what they're going to do after college. And that's very understandable vocation. Right. But I always press them. OK, what kind of human being do you want to be in the end? What's the goal? What kind of, and you can't control whether or not you can be a rock star or in the NFL or, you know, what I mean, you know what I mean? All these things. Right. And um uh, so I, I pressed them with let's, let's, you know, let's, these next couple of years. Let's think about what kind of human being you should want to be, and that should be your goal. And uh, um, so it emphasizes on continuity and uh, in Kierkegaard, but also on uh, see one of his things. One, one of his big insights was uh, that um, we don't we don't think enough about how we appropriate ideas. So it's one thing to get an idea; it's another thing to appropriate it, take it inwardly, uh, to live inside mm-hmm. it. You know, so. Um, uh, people can be on all kinds of social justice pages and hit like on this thing and that thing. And, but the question is, do you really sacrifice? What do you live for that life? Do you, you know, so he really thought that philosophers did not emphasize enough the, the aspect of appropriation, how, how are you taking mm. something in? Right. Yeah. As opposed to just pure knowledge. Hmm. Yeah. So it's no, so the, the knowledge will be one thing, but how you, well, and you see, you see this in someone like Freud, right? For Freud, uh, you can look at your dreams or whatever and talk and realize, oh man, I got some hostility towards my father, right? But for Freud, he said you that wouldn't be a, a kind of self understanding until you felt some of that hostility, mm. right? So this can so this issue of appropriation is very big on Kierkegaard. Mm. I mean, that makes me think about your subtitle for this book is how to live authentically in an inauthentic age and. The one thing I thought when I saw that subtitle was, man, I mean, everybody is about authenticity. Everyone is about sort of you doing you and mm. finding those things that make you feel passionate and that drive your life and inspire oh, you. Yeah. This passion stuff. It's such a privilege. But again, well, uh, you know, this emphasis on do, do what you love, all that stuff. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I think it's, I think it's somewhat limited, selfish, and uh, we ought to think about, uh, you know, um, a sense of vocation, what we can do for others sometimes. And, you know, it's yeah. just, it seems really, this is, a lot, this is really something I've just learned because all, all the boxers I, I train are, have been, uh, are, are immigrants, you know, and they don't think too much about, oh, I got to do what I love. They think about taking care of their family and that's a meaningful life for them. And uh, so I think we need to recognize that thinking those terms is very is a very uh, privileged perspective to have yeah I'm, I'm sorry i didn't mean to interrupt no 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 i mean it's kind of it's such a cliche today to do what you totally want. yeah yeah well what i was going to say was um what was the term you used that kierkegaard was about was it integration or uh, appropriation appropriation so, so yeah, yeah taking taking an idea in and really living in it Right. And, and it seems like there is, I mean, there's such, there's so much lip service paid to authenticity and what elements of a self that I might accumulate to sort of say, to present to the world, you know, like this is me, this is what I am all about, you know? Yeah. And, you have to, have, yeah. It's just, you have to have a vision of yourself and, uh, you know, create yourself. That's our idea of authenticity. I right. Think, right. It's a brand. I gotta know? be me. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a brand. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think uh, probably social media, uh, amplifies that quite a bit. You know? Sure, sure. Yeah. It's so easy yeah. to, um, like, uh, it's almost like reverse appropriation. You're like appropriating yourself to, you know, some some cause or some. Yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's it's interesting because correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think Kierkegaard would buy this notion of authenticity at all. 
No. So one of the things I talk about in the book is two different ideas of authenticity. One one being where you're authentic to the extent that you create yourself, which you might get out of someone like Nietzsche. And for Kierkegaard, you're authentic to the extent that you uh, become the self you were meant to be. And that for him is a child of God, that faith. Right. So two different notions of what it means to be authentic. One being create your own identity. The other being that there's a certain identity you should have, a certain kind of person you should become. Yeah. Right. So one thing that I wanted to ask you about was Kierkegaard's idea of faith. And, you know, I I think a lot of people who may not know anything about Kierkegaard still know the phrase, you know, the leap of faith. Oh, yeah. He never used that, you know. Really? He never used that phrase exactly. But, uh, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of ironic, and he was a master of irony. So I, I get the sense that, for him, faith is sort of this, it's it's absurd in a way, and it goes against sort of the reasons you might have to do other things about your life, to to manage your life. But can you flesh that out a little more and talk That's about right. sort of how he thought of it? Well, it's a, it's a, it involves a collision with reason. If, there were, if, if you could get faith through reason, there wouldn't be a need for faith, right? So, uh, yeah, it involves this... Uh, he says, where well, there's certainty, there's no risk, and where there's no risk, there's no faith, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, yes, and it, it does involve a collision with reason for Kierkegaard. You're not going to get to uh, faith through a bunch of syllogisms, you know? But I don't think he would say faith is absurd by any means. That that that's He, he wouldn't say that. It, it's a, That's not it, but it's a collision. With, it involves a collision with reason. And you mean, where's the priest? There's no proof of Takes imagination. There's no proof. Yeah, God's yeah. existence, or you know, uh, and he goes and he, he debunks some of the proofs and kind of laughs at him, right? And uh, so that's where the leap of faith that that it, that it's a choice, mm-hmm. right? That mm-hmm. you have to make a choice, and uh, so that's why I think in terms of uh, you know this, uh, um, the word in Danish is "tro," uh, means uh, trust too. It can mean trust. So I, I think the notion of faith that I got from Kierkegaard is one of a uh, trust in God, like you trust in a person. It's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, different than you know, a knowledge, right? It's a, mm. it's a trust that you try to that you try to stick with. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was going to ask. Is um, like, what does it, what does it look like, or what does it feel like for someone to have faith? And you know, I think a lot of times when we talk, I mean, this issue of our magazine is going to be the faith and doubt issue. Whenever you hear mm. people talk about faith, the other end of that dyad is doubt. Would you say that that's true for Kierkegaard? That the, it is faith versus doubt. Well, not really, because I mean, he's got this book that never, never published in his lifetime. It's called uh, Johannes Climacus or The Amenibus to be taught to best, <laughs> doubt everything or something like that. But uh, mm. there he says both uh, faith and doubt are expressions of this self-concern. Mm. So the person who doubts, right, they're concerned about they want the truth or they, you know, there's a self-concern that's involved in both faith and doubt. So he sees them linked together in some way. For him, then, would would it be faith? versus reason faith versus you know no, i think it'd be faith versus uh, indifference kind of you know mm-hmm. what i mean Just, yeah no, yeah whereas, whereas there's a real concern and a kind of doubt uh it would be faith versus uh, I'm, i don't care or i've heard people say well I don't have the ear for religion, just like someone might not have the ear for music, you know? So, what? Uh, okay. But I think it's a big question in life, whether or not you believe there's anything really sacred and what the sacred is, right? And that's part of the way I try to parse it out in secular terms is, is do you believe in anything sacred or not? So what would Kierkegaard's way be to sort of move people in the direction of indifference to considering another alternative? I mean, I, I just right. think about where we are today and it seems like, you know, he sort of, he sort of saw this coming, you know, in, in a way. And, but yeah, as, as this world is in this time more secularized and and more sort of wary of, okay. Um, like I, I don't have, I don't have any doctrines or dogmas. Like I'm sort of against those, those kinds of constraints. Yeah. But that's, that's where Kierkegaard becomes offensive because he says, look, well, there's no authority, there's no obedience. So there's this idea of obe- obedience is something used to be considered a virtue. Now we never even think about it, right? It's like, oh, mm. don't tell me what to do, you right. know, or right. also obsessed with, you know, don't push me, try to push me around. Right. And so uh, so it seems to me that uh, in contemporary society, whether it be mindfulness or not yoga, and I practice yoga for, and even the kind of philosophers are, are, are on, the, on the way, I think, to becoming the new priest class, you know, 
these these ways of having something so-called deeper, right, but mm. without having to think about God or obedience. Yeah, you know. So it's like so. One of Kierkegaard's great insights in the faith was he says, "Well, there's no possibility of offense. There's no possibility of faith." So in order to have faith, you have to overcome the offense to reason that faith is, right? Mm. But when Jesus went around, the first thing he said to people oftentimes was, don't be offended in me, mm. right? And many people try to have kind of the goods of faith and get rid of the offense. Oh, it's all about ethics. It's all about, you don't really have to believe in an afterlife, you know, and get the, the offensive element. And Kierkegaard says when you take the offensive element out, you remove the possibility of faith that the mm. two go together. And I, I think that certainly, uh, yeah, I certainly see that in our own age. And it's kind of, these people still say, I don't believe in God, but oh, there's something deeper, you know, mm. deeper, you know, a deeper self, a deeper, you know. So I think he'd take issue with that. Yeah, yeah. So I was just wondering, like, you know, as far as, you know, I, I'm I'm riddled with doubts. You know, I, I have, I go to church every Sunday, but I, but I, I also, um, I wonder if it's all a sham, you know? Yeah, I know, I know what you mean. Yeah, um, believe me. Yeah. yeah. And Kierkegaard recognized that, though. He said this, he said, you know, feelings around faith, feelings come and go just like other feelings, you know? Uh, that you, it's, it's not just, it's not a feeling, it's an orientation, a choice, a commitment, um, you know, but the, but the feeling aspect of it, like other, other human emotions, comes and goes. Yeah. Yeah, but it's a battle with that. I know that feeling of this is ridiculous, right? Yeah, one of the, one of the stories that you tell in, in the faith chapter is this, you know, you talk about your, your battle with doubt and oftentimes you pray to a God you don't believe in for Which faith weird, in right? that God. Yeah, right. And, and one of the stories you tell is sort of, you know, you're about to go meet with this person that you kind of can't stand. And right before you, you just throw up a little hail Mary and you describe it as like, you know, whether it was God, whether it was a chemical change that happened when I prayed, right. uh, I had this different orientation towards this person. I waved to the person. They almost fell over. <laughs> Smiled and waved. And that doesn't sound like some grand gesture, some heroic life, you know, but, yes. but it's the perfect picture of this existential change of heart that happens in faith. Yeah. And it's almost so small as to not be noticeable, but right. I just love that story. Oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah. One of the works of love, what works of faith or love for Kierkegaard is to, he says, it's basically to presuppose the ultimate goodness of other people. That is mm -hmm. people that irritate the hell out of you. You know, you know what I mean? Wow. So that I do real, not do that. No, but it's real. But that, that is, that's, he thinks that takes, that's a work of love, which is a work of faith for him. You mentioned that choice is really important for Kierkegaard and making a decision. I have a hard time with choices because I double back on them yeah. all the time. And yeah. there's a difference between that maybe though, and subjectivity, you know, like a lot of times we talk about how sort of the Christian message, what Jesus came to do for the world in sort of Christian theology is like an objective declaration. You know, it's good news. It's, mm -hmm. it, it doesn't change like we change. Whereas with subjective human beings, just like you said earlier, we have different emotions Moves, in, yeah. in five yeah. minutes, you know, right. and, you know, I could have not eaten breakfast and suddenly I've lost my faith in God and everything right. exactly. I yeah. good, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so how would Kierkegaard square that difference between like, what is, what is subjectively going on in me? What objective claims is the faith declaring and where do I stand in that? Uh, works of love. There's quite a, there's quite a bit about what what faith involves. I think, or you know, um, but he but he also doesn't think that you can just choose to have faith any, any more than you can choose to feel something, right? It's yeah. more of a choice, an orientation. If he's saying that you know the person of faith chooses God despite all reasons to mm -hmm. the contrary, what happens when that person? doesn't eat breakfast, <laughs> you know? Yeah, but don't you think that, that uh, so I think he would say you can't choose that faith, that there's really an element of grace, right? Which he doesn't bring mm -hmm. up very often because he thinks people abuse that notion. But I think he would say you can't choose to believe in God, but you can choose to try to. I can still say, okay, I'm going to say my prayers, I'm going to try to hold tight. And that happens in life too. You ever, you ever have like people like you, you're so, so close to and they, something they do something and you, you start to, you feel like you could lose trust in them. And you know what I mean? I mean, somebody yeah, absolutely. Like really banked on. Yeah. And then you think, well, what, what, what was I wrong? And you, you, you got to decide, well, man, I'm trying to maintain trust in this person. 
I'm gonna let you know. So that, that's how I see it: the struggle to to keep keep trying. Yeah, that, that's why I so say you don't lose your, from a care guardian perspective. You don't lose your faith; you, you push it away. That was something that I, I quoted on the site because I just loved it. Because a lot of times I feel like if I do lose my faith, it's that either God was never there. Yeah. Or because I've been left in some way, you know, like yeah, I used yeah. to have this fervent, emotional, you know, like real connected feeling with God. And now I don't know, have I become jaded? Have I, have right. I lost that, like that juju that I used to have? And yeah. what would you say to someone that came into your office and, and was asking for, for some solace there? What would Kierkegaard say? You know, the whole the whole phrase "keep the faith," right? It means suggests that it's a, when we're in that kind of duress, there's it is a struggle to hold on to keep trusting. Yeah. You know, even though you feel and to recognize these emotions, these emotions that bombard us, that there, there's a temporal perspective to them. We, I think one of the dangers, and I talk about this in the depression chapters, is losing temporal perspective. Right? You're in this feeling, and you think it's going to last forever, or it's the ultimate feeling. And trying to, uh, to to get people to be able to sit with these, those kinds of emotions and not not freak and not lose the trust, right? Just say I'm this is, I'm taking a punch, man. You know it's bad. I'm a bad time. Yeah. You know, and so being able to a, a lot of the book and the existentialist really is about being able to sit with painful emotions mm. and not bail out. So, Connor Gwynn, you are currently the chaplain at Stuart Hall School in Stanton, Virginia, and your essay in this issue of the magazine is kind of an extension of a post that you wrote for Mockingbird about deconstruction and secularism. And just real quick, if someone's never heard of secularism or knows what it's about or has never even heard of Charles Taylor's book, could you just give us a quick synopsis of what Charles Taylor's framework is and what you're talking about in the essay? So Charles Taylor uh, is a Canadian philosopher uh, and professor. And he wrote this huge book called A Secular Age. I think it's like 900 pages that really diagnoses what he views as the issues facing the world now, the, the things that have led to the place that we are, to what he calls a secular age. I should preface all of it by saying I'm not an expert on Taylor, and there's people who know so much more than me. But what I take away, and the primary thing I focus on in the piece is this idea of secularization and what he calls the kind of fragilizing, the fragilization of belief. And so he divides time or human experience, human history into two distinct periods. One was a period marked by transcendence, and it was the period before the secular age when everything was marked by the divine or the transcendent experience of reality. So the big thing he talks about is the self. So back in the day, before the Enlightenment, we had this idea of the self as porous, that there were things out in the world that could invade our selfhood. These things are God, gods with a little g, devils, demons, fairies, spirits, whatever. We were constantly at risk of being attacked, and so we needed protection from that. And this led to belief in the transcendent, belief in God. And something happened, he says, I think about 600 years ago, that the self became what he says is buffered, that our selfhood was suddenly more autonomous, more isolated, we're protected from all of these realities. So suddenly we don't need religion because it's really individual selves kind of making a go of it. He calls it the immunization of the world, meaning the idea of transcendence kind of disappeared along with the scientific revolution. So I pick up that thread. And like I said, the idea of the fragilization of belief, because around this time, this new trend started where belief in the transcendent itself became unbelievable. Science was proving so much and so many questions that used to be unknown or unanswerable were suddenly answerable. So the logic goes, given enough time, we'll have answers for every question. Given enough time, we'll know everything there is to know about everything, including why the world is here, how it came to be. A good example of this is the Large Hadron Collider and the search for the God particle, 
right? This idea that given enough time and resources and scientific advancement, science will answer every question. And so belief in anything transcendent has become fragile and unbelievable. I think in the piece I say, the, the question now is, you don't really believe that, do you? This idea that believing in things outside of the imminent has become almost impossible. It's definitely out of vogue. Yeah, you say um, everything is available, yet nothing feels solid. Our zeitgeist is marked by deep cynicism, fake news, and the question, you don't really believe that, do you? Given all the possible options for cars or toothpastes or faiths, how can anyone be sure of the one they choose? Add to the mix the post-enlightenment belief that everything that actually exists can be seen or studied, and we live in a world where belief itself has become unbelievable. Yeah. So what does that have to do with like authenticity and, and the question of authenticity? So Taylor calls the age that we live in, generally calls it the secular age, but he also refers to it as the age of authenticity, that suddenly this buffered self is the primary vehicle for understanding everything. So where it used to be we were selves in a web of selves, right? Like our identity was only coherent in our families, in the structure of our families, in our communities, in our town, in our faith. Suddenly those webs are being broken apart and now we're individual selves. And so now the goal, the ultimate goal, is to be self-actualized, to be an authentic version of yourself. Hmm. We could list, you know, endless podcasts and books and blogs and movies and documentaries and everything about finding your authentic self. And I mean, it's just become the idea of doing something for someone else. And I mean that in the sense of identity, taking on identity or participating in something because someone else wants you to, or because it's what your family has done or something like that is suddenly forbidden, right? An example in our world, if you go to church because you were raised in church, not because you chose it, you know, that's going to get a lot of raised eyebrows. Like maybe you haven't really thought it through or you're not a thinking person even. Right. And so you talk about deconstruction and, and the deconstructing work ends up happening when you're trying to get to your individual authentic self. And so you're deconstructing all of those webs, those like porous webs that maybe you once would have been connected to. Yeah, and it's a sign of the times, right? Like there was a time when there was no questioning the web that you belong to because that's all there was. And now we have access through the internet and a number of other technologies. We have access to basically everything, every form of belief, every school of thought, every whatever. And so now, like I said in the piece, it doesn't feel like the ground is solid because every decision, there's a million possible outcomes. You know, it's, I use the light example of like toothpaste or cars or something. But there's this idea that there is the right one for you out there. You just have to do the work and read the reviews and find the one. It's um, utterly stressful. Yeah. Yeah. And it's debilitating, right? I, yeah. There's been a number of pieces recently about that, the kind of decision fatigue and... What is it? The Aaron paralysis? Yeah. An analysis paralysis. Exactly. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, you end up talking about sort of how that ends up relating to faith and church. And I had always thought, gosh, well, deconstruction in church doesn't necessarily sound like such a bad thing because, you know, there's there's all this fluff, you know, in, in church. And maybe deconstruction means like going back to the essentials and to sort of the, you know, the reason we wanted to go to church in the first place, you know. And so at first when I thought of deconstruction, I thought, well, that's kind of sounds like a good thing because there's just so much like, you know, cultural and esoteric mumbo jumbo that keeps a lot of people away from churches. But you're saying that, that that's actually, it's gone too far. Yeah. So what I'm saying is, and I think I, I hope I say it explicitly, that deconstruction itself isn't bad. And especially deconstructing toxic religious beliefs or, you know, negative things we've inherited or negative experiences, like all of that is great. And we need to deconstruct it. And I think what you said is right, that we need to deconstruct kind of the fluff that can build up. And especially in the West and in America, 
there's so much attached to American Christianity that surely needs to be deconstructed. So that's not what I'm saying at all. But what I'm saying is the real work of deconstruction happens automatically. It's not, you know, we don't need to wake up one day and decide we're going to do the work of deconstruction. Any human life experience is going to have death and grief and pain and suffering and doubt and all of that. And that it's not the gospel that needs to be deconstructed. Instead, it's the gospel and it's Jesus that meets us at the point of deconstruction. I think we all know, either from our own experience or stories we've heard, people who have been deconstructed completely, and they find that Jesus is there waiting at the moment of deconstruction, the point of deconstruction. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that life itself does that deconstructing work. You know, people die, um, our illusions of ourselves and of reality are stripped from us. And, you know, yesterday was Ash Wednesday. We are literally deconstructed. We die. But then Jesus gives us something to believe. It's not just pulling all of the sort of like all of the husks off of us, but but actually giving us something to hold on to. And I just want to read this section because it's so great. Um, the Christian life is not primarily about the work of deconstruction. Everyone is deconstructed in the end. The Christian life is about persevering to believe the gospel in the midst of your daily deconstruction. It's about repenting, then repenting again. It's about being born again, again. The myth of deconstruction relies on another myth, that life is static and that once you find the truth, everything is settled. The problem with both myths is that the truth, capital T, is a person who was and is and is to come, who makes himself known, especially when your life has been deconstructed. Um, you're so right, and, and I know so many people who have had experiences in church where the baby has come out with the bathwater and sermons just don't have anything to offer their congregations and whatever once was there doesn't feel there anymore. The church feels, you know, skeletal or cold. But in your mind, is there a way forward or what sort of rings hope for you? Yeah, I think there definitely is a way forward. I think, unfortunately, so many churches just have nothing to say to hurting people, right? Like they, I've heard so many sermons that are really great political speeches or really great stand-up comedy even, or really great, you know, public speaking exercises. But that's not what a sermon is. It's not what the good news is. And so what gives me hope is the idea that the gospel, the actual gospel speaks directly into the worst parts of people's lives. That Jesus came and only met people basically at their point of deconstruction. The example I use in the piece is Saul, whose literal worldview was deconstructed. He was knocked off his horse, blinded, and basically everything he had built for himself collapsed around him. The whole religious infrastructure collapsed. And it was in that that he was ministered to. And I think that's what gives me hope. And that's, you know, the churches that we see growing are the churches that are ministering to people in their deconstruction. Taylor talks about uh, this idea of cross-pressurization. So... We're in the secular age. Eminence is the norm. People are taught to doubt transcendence at every turn. And yet there's still transcendence, right? I think the example Taylor uses is, you know, your baby's born and you're looking at your baby and it's transcendent. There's something, something uh, more than just, you know, your offspring in front of you. There's some connection or a loved one dies. And for the next four nights after the funeral, she visits you in a dream or you have dreams about a long gone loved one or something like that. And it's in these moments that we realize that the story we've been given by society and culture isn't the whole story, that it can't be. And I think that's where the church can step in. The church can step into those moments and say, you're right, that's not the whole story. I think the worst thing that the church could do, and we see a lot of churches do it, is kind of double down on people who, you know, life is kind of deconstructing everything around them. They double down on the structures that they think need to exist for someone to have faith. The best thing you can do is just be there for someone and say that, you know, Jesus is here with you. If you don't believe that, I'm here with you. And I'm here in the name of Jesus. And let that be ministry. Taylor, again, uses the term pre-shrunk religion, that 
Christianity has become after the Enlightenment, this list of beliefs that you either agree with or disagree with, and it's as simple as that. But we know that Christianity is not a list of beliefs. Christianity is, first and foremost, a person who for 2,000 years has still been interacting with people and changing lives and changing communities. And it's generally at the point of deconstruction when all hope is lost and all the structures have fallen that the still small voice of God is there. Yeah. A preacher that I know talks about God's office being at the end of your rope. And it does seem to be that whenever things fall apart, that's actually the hope for the beginning of something new. And yet, that's a narrative that we find truly revolting <laughs> naturally. We we try we try as hard as we can to sort of stay away from that course, but that might in fact be where our hope is. Yeah, and I mean Ash Wednesday is a perfect kind of image of this. It's what I talked about in my sermon. And Jacob Smith mentioned this in the same old song podcast that it's not just that we're acknowledging death on Ash Wednesday. There's a cross made in the in the ashes. That that's the the foolishness that Paul talked about is at the ultimate deconstruction, death, we proclaim that life comes out of that, that the only way to be born again is to die first. And that's hard and we don't want to hear it. And I'd much rather, you know, kind of sit in the rubble of my deconstruction if I thought I was in control. I'd prefer that to giving over control and truly dying. I wanted to ask why you think it is that Jesus seems to prefer children or <laughs> seems to call them towards him rather than push them away as, as everyone else wanted to. Oh, that's a great question. Truthfully, we're all children, hmm. aren't we? We're all, the Bible is speaking to us as God's children all the way through. So I think it's more about him reminding us who we are rather than preferring children because you know, you're joking about that. But yeah, yeah, it's sort of like, I think children are so disarming and so bare and open. And they're very aware of how small they are in a big world, in a ginormous universe, because they're literally small, aren't they? So I think it's sort of like, it reminds me of what Picasso said about how it took him, and I'm not quoting directly, but it took him so many years to learn how to paint like Raphael. And it took him a lifetime to learn how to paint like a child. Mm. And I think the reason he was saying that is that a child, because they know they're small and they're not able to sort of hold their pencil even correctly, and they don't have all the skill, everything that comes across is heart. It's just that it's directly coming from their heart and they're not self-conscious and they're not getting in the way. And I think that's one of those lessons children can teach us is that we get in our own way and we get so clever and we hide and we become complicated. And I think that what Jesus did was so disarming when he was, you know, he's a very busy person and you wouldn't expect a very busy person to say, let's have time with the children. That's really not what we, how we go on, is it? Right. So, but I love that about him because he's so not what we expect. Yeah. So, we have a jail ministry here at the church, and one of the things that it's been really difficult to find Bible studies or things that could really connect or communicate with inmates at the jail. And one of the things mm -hmm. that that never fails is is either the storybook Bible or thoughts to make your heart sing. And it's just so true that the inner child is in all of us, and that you said this yourself in the in the interview that a lot of times when you go to readings, it's mostly children, but the adults are all scattered throughout and you can hear a pin drop because they're listening mm -hmm. to the story too. Yes. And when I first started to speak, well, most of my speaking is, is actually to adults, not to children, which at first I didn't like the sound of. When I first hmm. started being invited to speak, I was very insecure. I would just say, well, no, I don't do that. I, I speak to children. But as I've learned in my life, most of the times I say no like that. I, I should learn to ask God what he thinks. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, I found that my job isn't, and someone said this to me early on when I was first speaking to adults. He said, I think the thing is, your job is to reach children, but your job is also to reach the child in us. I think that's something maybe, well, I certainly didn't plan that. And I didn't know that's how God was going to work. But I think, again, it's that disarming thing that children have. And if you, we know this from our favorite children's literature, that if, if a writer treats children with dignity and respect, then it will reach the adult. 
it can't help it. Like Winnie the Pooh or, you know, something, the real Winnie the Pooh is so, so genius. And it's not mm. parents laughing over the head of child of a child. It's the child and the parent laughing at the same thing, which I think is why it's so beautiful. I really don't like the books where it's sort of a joke put in for the adults, but the child has no idea what that joke means. To right. me, that seems a bit disrespectful for children. It's mm. like they're not in on the joke or something. Yeah. I like the idea that children get to introduce the adult, get the, ch- the adult to see the way they see, you know, mm. the other way around. Yeah. So you mentioned Winnie the Pooh. Are there other children's writers that you think do that quite well? Yes. There's, well, I, of course, obviously C.S. Lewis, a little older than right. Winnie the Pooh. But I mean, I grew up with the books that a lot of Americans may not have heard of, but I, I loved them. Called them. It was by Tove Jansen. The Finn Family Moomin Troll books mm. about a family of these made up characters. She's like Winnie the Pooh in the sense that it's all very, it's a very young seven, eight year olds. But I still love reading them because the voice of the, it, it's so beautiful and it's, it's deep, but simple. So a lot of children's books are like that. I think really good ones. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's funny, you know, this is the, the faith and doubt issue, obviously. And in terms of faith, you know, it seems as though we're always trying so hard to be grown up. You know, we really want to have like an intellectually rigorous faith or a faith that, that has all the answers. And, you know, I think a lot of readers would say that as far as having a faith, it's something that isn't very childish. And yet in terms of faith, this Jesus doting on children and pouring his Mm -hmm. attention on children it seems as though we grown-ups tend to miss out on what faith is by trying to make it grown-up. Yes, and you use the word, it's interesting, because childish and childlike are very mm. different, aren't they? But I think we tend to confuse them, and we think that we should be more sophisticated. We sort of think we, should, we shouldn't be like children. Well, we shouldn't be childish, because we're grown-ups. But childlike is something else, isn't it? Because you can meet a very old person who's childlike and it's very beautiful. And I think it's to do with humility. And again, it goes back to a child knows that they're small in a huge universe. So they have a right-sized view of themselves. And I think Mm. we need, that's where we need to learn from them because the the closer we are in our faith, if we're relating to God, the God of the universe, and we're in the right-sized view of ourselves, we're going to be... (laughs) more humble, aren't we? And the older we get, I think we start to realize how much we don't know, don't we? Hopefully. Right. Yeah. Um, and the, the, um, you mentioned humility and, and another word that you used in the, in the interview is wonder that there's, there's a wonder yeah. that children have that it's almost as if, um, adults need to unlock in order to get there that, um, and why do yeah. you think that is? Well, it's that lovely, I think I quoted that Chesterton quote, which I love about the daisies, and that it's we've sinned and grown older than our Father in heaven. And when you look at the beauty of what he's created, I think we just get so busy in our lives when we're grown up. And, and obviously, we've got many more responsibilities than a child has. But one thing that's spoken to me is when I watch children play, they're really free to play as long as they know the parent is nearby. But the minute the, they don't know where their parent is, very young children, the minute the parent isn't anywhere nearby, then they can't play. So it kind of spoke to me one day when I was looking at that, and I realized the only reason I can't play and be full of wonder and joy is because I don't really trust that God's got me. I'm thinking it's up to me, and if I think it's all up to me, then there is no wonder, there's no joy. You don't have time to play, for goodness sake. You've got to sort everything out and be in charge. And So I think that it comes down to that, do I trust God is my father who only wants good for me. If I live in the world like that, then I can slow down and I can look and notice. And I think that's one of the hardest things. I I was reading, we're studying Knowing God, J.R. Packer's Knowing God. And I read that when I was 20. And I remember thinking, yeah, yeah, it's great. And sort of didn't really get it. Now I'm reading it. And every chapter is so profound. And one thing he said was, he was talking about wisdom of the wisdom of God. And he said, One of the traits of wisdom, you know, we think wisdom means knowing everything God knows about everything. Probably so we don't have to trust him, we can do it all. But it's nothing to do with that. It's about knowing we don't know, we don't know everything God knows. But one of the things he said was wisdom is living in the day and thoroughly enjoying it. 
living wow. in the present and thoroughly enjoying it. And I thought, wow, I don't do that. <laughs> I don't live in I the don't. day and thoroughly enjoy it. <laughs> I live in the future and dread it or live in the past or, you know, we're always, yeah. that's all of our journeys, isn't it? But mm. I do wonder if as children they are in the day and so they're noticing. Yeah. And they're full of wonder. Yeah. That makes me think that doubt has a lot to do with our sense of control, like our misappropriation of control that we, you know, when we think it's up yeah. to us or when we think it's something that we have and it's all up to us, then then it's hard to enjoy the day. Yeah. I don't have very good days when I think like that. It's all, all right. rushing and, you know, it's all perfectionism. All the isms come up, don't they? And, yeah. You know, it just happens without you noticing. Right. You're joyful and the next minute you've become... Not that it's all about feelings, but I think sometimes I'll, I'll be halfway through a day and think, why am I so like on edge? And I mm. usually will trace it back to the fact that I'm, I really don't think God's looking out or I somewhere along the line believed something of a lie somewhere. Yeah, I was going to ask you if doubt has been a part of your story in any part of mm. your life. Oh, sure. I, well, I love what Beekner, didn't he say, if there's no room for doubt, there's no room for me. I'm like, well, yeah, I think doubt for me shows itself in sort of stubborn, negative beliefs. For instance, like writing, an old belief, oh, no, I can't do it. I don't know what I'm doing. Go around all the day in my head saying that. Um, that's doubt, because if I trusted God, I would say, you've given me this gift and you can use this and I surrender myself to you. But doubt for me shows itself in sort of sticking with negative beliefs that God has said are not true. Mm. It's more familiar maybe than yeah. being joyful and trusting. Right. Yeah. For me, that rings true that it is more familiar. Is that what, is that what you, yeah. What do you have that? Yeah. For me, it's, it's similar. It, it's almost like a competing, it's a competing story for the way the world works and the way, for the way that my, my life is kind of panning itself out, you know, and there's very little room for something outside of myself to make yeah. any change. I really like that, the competing story. That, I think that's really good. Yeah. Are there things that you have recognized over time have helped you through or things that you do to help you pass through yeah, that mindset? Like yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the older I get, the more I'm noticing it, whereas before it used to be an atmosphere. You know, mm. I wouldn't even know why I... So now at least I recognize the lie that I'm telling or that I'm believing, the lie that I'm believing. And I'm, I'm more aware of the fact that I need to just get out of the way. They always say this with writing, you need to get out of the way and let the story through. Because mm -hmm. if you're in the way, it's all going to be showing off. You're going to be very all about you, but you have to get out of the way and think about the reader and tell the best story you can tell. But that's quite a good picture for everything, being a conduit of what God wants to do in the world. And anything negative and bad and dark and destructive has no part in what God's doing. So I think when I notice it, which is my journey is to try and notice it more quickly, is to just surrender it. Instead of trying with sort of willpower to say, I'm not going to do that, to actually just say, bring God into it and say, oh, I'm doing it again. I don't want to do it. I hate mm -hmm. this. Please take it and change me because I know I can't. By my strength, I don't get very far. Mm. You know, I get in a big mess. Yeah. And I, I think it's just that thing people talk about of stinking thinking. And whatever your Achilles heel is, the enemy knows where to get you. And it'll come at you in all different forms. For me, it's usually just one lie in different disguises. So it, your lie might be something like you're not enough, you're not doing it right, or you're too much, you know, fill in the blank. But whatever that is, I think knowing what your particular tendency is, then you can notice it whenever it comes up. But I find that, you know, if I start the day and I, I say I, I'm, I have time of prayer and I really give the day over and really say to God, you're my boss. And I think of that, you know, the parent with the child. And I think I want to be that child that's playing, knowing that my father is there. I don't have to worry. I can live in the present. Then I can have a great day, you know, hmm. but it's a step by step, isn't it? And Sure. Reaching out to friends, talking to people. I think isolation is a bad thing. Yeah, absolutely. It? it sure is. If we're in our heads too much, we're, you know, then it's that dangerous neighborhood that Anne Lamott talks about. <laughs> yeah, you, you talk about how when it comes to children, we don't give them enough credit. And that there's often behind, you know, what we what we say is is, you know, 
annoying or if we say, you know, I'm just not, I'm not really a kid person. That's, that's great that you are <laughs> Sally Lloyd-Jones, but I'm, I'm not really a kid person that we're actually denying them the very real concerns that they have and that the very real mm-hmm. problems that they are willing to confront that a lot of times we aren't. And so in the stories that you tell, a lot of times you are sort of conveying those very real concerns. And that's why it communicates to both young and old, because there are concerns too, but we've just built so many different sort of strategies to not look at them straight on. And But you talk about the difference between advising a kid, you know, or giving advice and storytelling Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. how a story can unlock so much more. Could you talk about that a little bit? You know, children look to us for everything. And I may have said this in the question, but that you know, we're supposed to give them information, we're supposed to guide them, we're supposed to give them advice. And there is a place for that. But there is also a place for giving them hope. And I sometimes worry that in all our giving of the advice and all of the instruction and the rules that they have at school, and then they have at home. And that's right, they have to have that because that's part of our job as grown-ups. But I think we have to be careful not to just then forget to give them hope. And that's why I think a story can do something amazing because it's you and the child on the same level. You're not the teacher. You and the child are reading a story together and wondering together about this amazing God who loves us. And I think when we do that with a child, we're doing more than just telling them a story. We're also modeling how our faith works that we're children with our Heavenly Father and that we don't have to have all the answers. Um, so I think it gives room for the child to sit there and wonder and have questions. And it's very miraculous, I think. And half of the time we don't know what a story's doing and we're not hmm. supposed to. It's like a seed. Right. And I think it takes more honesty from us then and more vulnerability, you know, because one of the things is with a child is, you know, you can tend to think, oh, I mustn't do anything wrong. I must be perfect. But the best thing you can do with a child is say sorry to them hmm. when you're not perfect and model, because that's how we all are. We're all hurting people all the time. And it's not about that. Obviously, we don't want to hurt people. But often what happens is the mending and the healing and the amazingness happens when you you make up, when you're humble with hmm. each other. What's new on your horizon? What new projects are you working on? Well, I always try and have lots of different ones so that I don't obsess on one. <laughs> it's not good for my head, <laughs> you know, um, because I think all of anyone in a creative field, or at least that's what I, I think, is that we're all, we, we work on a manuscript, then we send it into the editor, and if they don't get back to us within an hour, we think they hate it. You know, Absolutely. that's the insanity. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about so, at all. <laughs> I know. So, and it's good to be able to, I think that's the other thing is humor is huge, isn't it? In terms of what we were talking about earlier, if we can laugh at ourselves Mm -hmm. in a healthy way and see the insanity of these ways that we go on, it's quite helpful. That helps me anyway. So anyway, I've got some picture book ideas. I'm working on a a middle grade novel. I'm thinking about more devotionals. I've got lots of different ones, which I feel very grateful to have lots of different possible things. Well, there's one particular entry from Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing that I was wondering if you could read for us. You know, we have in the Faith and Doubt issue, we have this this list of 10 books for those on the fence and, you know, books for folks who, you know, generally speaking, books do not always tend to give you all the answers that you seek, especially the existential ones. You know, there are some out there that have really spoken comforting words for people, and yours is one of them for sure. Oh, thank you. I was going to ask if you could read Resting and Relying. Oh, sure. And this was a book that actually I wrote for my niece who was being bullied, and and it was that sense of she was getting lots of advice and lots of instruction about sharing her lunch and all this Mm. kind of stuff. And I just thought, what does she read to tell her, give her hope? And that's why I wrote this. So Mm. it was that motivation that she would hear what, because she was being bullied. I wanted her to hear what God said about her instead of what the bullies were saying. Mm. Um, So that's why this, where this came from. And I have to say, of course, that this is a illustrated this book. So I'm only telling you half the story told in two languages. So we're only having one (laughs) of the languages (laughs) anyway. And the picture is of Jago, the illustrator. It's him holding his little boy who was about one at the time. Resting and relying. When you were little, did someone big ever carry you? 
Did you rest your head on his shoulder, leaning your whole weight on him? Faith is leaning your whole weight on God, resting your head on his shoulder. Faith means resting, relying, not on who we are or what we can do or how we feel or what we know. Faith is resting in who God is and what he has done. And he has done everything. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. 1 John four sixteen. Thank you, Sally. Oh, it's my pleasure. I mean, the wonderful thing about the work we do, isn't it, is that we get to work on these sorts of things and then they turn around and bless us. We're always learning, aren't we? And I, <laughs> one thing I wanted to say was going back to what we started with about how Jesus is so tender to children. I also have come to see how tender he is to adults because when I go and speak and it's mostly to adults and I read from my books and I can't hear a pin drop, it's very poignant because you realize there's this whole group of people of all ages, all grown up and sensible and clever and everything like that. And you read them a story and they become like a child. And Mm. it makes me think God's heart for us is so tender. Mm. He wants us to remember that we're just like the little children. That's as we can be that dependent on him, you know, those little mm. children who can't do anything very, very skillfully and are very small in a very big world. Mm. It's very comforting somehow to think that he loves us like that mm. in all our grown upness. <laughs> the Mockingbird magazine and the Mocking cast are each a part of Mockingbird Ministries a ministry which seeks to connect the Christian message of grace and forgiveness to the realities of everyday life. If you want to subscribe to The Mockingbird, you can do so at magazine.embird.com. Magazine.embird.com. See you next time. Thanks for listening. 